Our meditation this morning from the Old Testament, text that we have read together from 1 Chronicles chapter 13, and you'll find the parallel text to this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we may make some references to that chapter as well. David was a man after God's own heart. And here in the narrative before us, he had purpose to bring the ark of the Lord to the place of preeminence that it deserved. He had nothing but God's honor and glory in mind. But tragically, he was taken up with the fervency of his own zeal. His desire was good. His motive was pure. But even in that fervency and the purity of his motive, he did that which was displeasing unto the Lord. It is not sufficient simply to claim a worthy purpose, even just to have a proper spirit, but it is that we must govern our worship, govern all of our behavior, according to the precepts, according to the orders, the commands, the teachings of the Word of God. Indeed, there are many Christians who desire the right things, but they are lax in their mode and manner with which they seek to fulfill those desires. Westminster Confession in addition to identifying God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit as the sole objects of our worship, declares that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is limited by his own revealed will. Our text today certainly has very easy and ready application to those in the church that seek to build the church by using gimmicks and all the devices of human imagination. But I'm not preaching today to that kind of church. I'm preaching to a church that affirms what we know is a regulative principle of worship, that our worship must be simply according to the mandates of God's word, But yet the tragedy is that we can even, on the one hand, be doing things right and still miss out, and still miss out on the true object of our worship, a spiritual experience of what it is to know the presence of God as we come in to the house of God. So I trust today that as we meditate upon this I assume a very familiar portion in David's life, that we might have open hearts and that we might indeed desire above all things, not only to affirm that we believe that God is here, but to know in our heart of hearts and our experience the joy of what it is to be in the presence of the Lord. So that's my simple theme this morning. I want us to reflect upon the presence of God. 
a presence that, first of all, has to be understood. And we put this here in this context. It's described for us in connection with the bringing back of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is going to teach us some things here about what it is to be in the presence of God. There was indeed a very sophisticated Ark theology that was antecedent to David that David was well aware of. A theology around the Ark that God himself had defined to teach his people through this very simple object lesson what it was to be in the presence of God. That Ark of the Covenant was just a box. Yeah, it was just a wooden box. That Ark, that box was not the reality of the presence of God, but it was an object lesson that God had given to that generation before they had all of the written revelation that you and I enjoy, object lessons to teach them important spiritual truths about spiritual realities. And the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of the tabernacle furniture, remember. You remember how the tabernacle was constructed in that tripartite division, the outer court in which the congregation in general could gather. But then the holy place where only the priest could minister and then behind the veil, that most holy place. And we have all of the other pieces of furniture, the altar and the labor and the candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense, all of that on the one side of the veil. But behind the veil, in that most holy place, was the climactic manifestation of the presence of God with his people, the Ark of the Covenant. And God made that box a sacramental symbol, vehicle, to teach the people that they could meet with him. The Lord said in three different occasions, as he describes the Ark of the Covenant in one way or the other, there I will meet with you. I will meet with you above the mercy seat. So the Ark of the Covenant gives us various lessons. What it is then? What is it to be in the presence of God? Well, above all things, the Ark certainly speaks to us of the sovereignty of God. Here was this wooden box that was now overlaid with gold, rich gold, symbolic of majesty, symbolic of that glory. And the ark speaks to us of the absolute sovereignty of God. We began our service today with the singing of Psalm 99. This holy God that dwells between, that reigns between the cherubim. The place of his throne, Psalm 132 that we sang just a moment ago as well, speaks of the ark as the footstool of God, the place of his sovereignty, the place where he rules from where he is going to rule. So that's the first lesson that we need to learn, that if we are going to be in the presence of God, if we're going to enjoy and experience the presence of God, we must realize that we are coming into the presence of that one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the absolute sovereignty, kingship. The absolute kingship of the God in whose presence we want to come speaks to us, therefore, of the need for submission, the need for humility. Certainly there's no place for rebels. There's no place for rebels in the presence of God. To come into the presence of God, we must know that we are coming in 
to the presence of that one who is the absolute authority, that one whose rule is absolute. And so we come with our knees bowed and our hearts bowed in his presence, for he is the absolute king. The ark speaks to us in the gold that covered that ark. It speaks to us of the sovereignty of God. But the ark also tells us and teaches us, taught them and teaches us as well, that to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of holiness. God is holy. You remember that over the ark, over the ark were those cherubim with their wings touching, hovering over that box. And the Lord ruled, we read that again in Psalm 99, saying it, that he rules between the cherubim. He reigns. But the cherubim, one of the classes of angelic beings that we read of in the scriptures, they were, every time we see them, in one way or another, the guardians and the proclaimers of the holiness of God. The first time that we see the cherubim is there after man fell into sin now expelled from paradise and God puts the cherubim with their flaming swords to keep men out of paradise. Have no fellowship with God. They're the guardians, I say, of the presence of God, the guardians of the holiness of God. We see them again in that mysterious vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 of those living creatures uh, that were doing the bidding of the Lord. We know they were cherubim because they're so identified for us in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. But they were the guardians, the proclaimers of God's holy presence that was given there to the experience of Ezekiel. And now we see them hovering. We see them hovering over the ark, over this box, testifying that to come into the presence, to be in the presence of this king, is to come in the presence of that one that is absolutely and infinitely holy. There is no God like him the uniqueness of God, the one true and living God, the uniqueness of God. We speak of the holiness of God, that God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely different and distinct from anything else, everything else, all else that is a creation, separate from God, the uniqueness of God. And so here are the cherubim declaring the holiness of God, and it would appear then, it would appear that man has no access. It would appear on that basis that man has no access into the presence of God. How can we come? We're sinful creatures. How can we come? How can any man come into the presence of God? We're sinful. We're unholy. And God is holy. Psalmist declares that if we're going to ascend into the holy place, into that holy mountain, we must do so with clean hands and a pure heart. There's a separateness. And the cherubim would seem to indicate a foreboding picture there. A foreboding picture that we have no hope. We have no hope of enjoying the presence of God because we are so absolutely unholy. It speaks of his righteousness. That box speaks of the righteousness of God. For inside the box was the law of God. Inside the box were those tables of the law. Those tables that God had given to Moses on Sinai that we have read this morning. 
that we have read this morning, these absolute, inflexible, and unchangeable precepts and commandments of God that you know and I know we are incapable of obeying. There's the righteousness of God. And the law there declares that God is righteous and He's just. And He demands, God demands an absolute righteousness. There's no such thing as almost righteous in the eyes of God. And so therefore we're all sinners. And that open box with the law of God in that box testifies to our sin. It testifies to our inability our absolute inability to come into and to know anything of the joy of the presence of God. How can we come? We're sinners. The law reveals God's will to his people, the testimony against his people. I say inflexible, unchangeable, God demanding an absolute conformity, requirements of acceptance into his presence. The open box, that open box speaks to us with the law of God there. It speaks to us of condemnation. How can we come? How can we come? But the box also speaks to us of God's gracious provision. For inside that box, not only was the law of God, but there was that pot of manna. Remember the manna that God had given to the people there in the wilderness to teach them that every Part of their existence depended upon God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That comes from that context, that statement. The law of God, that manna is there that speaks to us of God's faithfulness, of his provision for his people. They had to trust the Lord day after day that that manna would be there. They had to trust the Lord not to take more than they needed because God would keep his word. So the manna, the pot of manna there speaks of God's gracious provision. Also speaks, also speaks there of his faithfulness to his people. But inside the box also was one other thing. There was Aaron's rod. There was Aaron's rod that budded that was also within that box. Remember the context? Remember the context of Aaron's rod there? This is in Numbers. You read this in Numbers 16 and 17. Korah rebelled against the authority of Moses, against the authority of Aaron. Korah was one of the Levites. Korah had a responsibility that God had given to him and his family uh, in regard to the service of the tabernacle, but they weren't priests. They were Levites, but not priests. And Korah became a bit envious of Aaron. And Korah thought that we can, we can do that. I can do that. I can get to God on my own without this stuff that Aaron is doing. I don't need Aaron. We don't need that priest. And he took on himself, assuming that he could enter into the presence of God by himself. And God smote him. Remember that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and those that followed and others then that were burned with fire. God would not tolerate that kind of rebellion. But then to demonstrate that there was but one and only one mediator that God would accept, God told Moses to tell the people, I want every tribe to bring a rod. You bring your staff. 
representing every tribe and put your name on that staff. And Aaron, you bring one too and put your name on that staff. And the staff that buds, that will be the chosen mediator. And sure enough, sure enough, as the rods were put there the next morning, it was Aaron's rod that budded. There was God's confirmation that there is but one way, there is but one priest that he will allow that he will accept, and there must be that mediation. And so the rod of Aaron speaks to us of the mediation, and this is now beginning to give us hope. There's the king of kings. How can we barge into the presence of the king? There's the holiness of God. How can we approach with our sin before God? But now Aaron's rod testifies that notwithstanding all of those restrictions, there is a way, there is a mediator. There is a mediator, and that point certainly as we'll see here, to the Lord Jesus. But then, final thing about the ark was the mercy seat. The open box with the law of God called for condemnation. The open box with that law of God called for our damnation and called for our death. The wages of sin is death. But God put a lid on that box. The mercy seat, the lid literally of atonement, and you know the story there again, the ritual of the day of atonement as the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. And there was salvation, there was redemption, there was atonement. The mercy seat. The ark speaks to us then that there is a way. There is a way that men can come into the presence of God. There is a way that men can understand and enjoy and experience that which otherwise, apart from God's grace and apart from God's provision and apart from God's one way, man could never enter in. But there is a way, a blood-sprinkled way. As the blood was sprinkled upon that mercy seat, quieting the demands of the law, the blood coming between the holy and the righteous God, and the sinner. It's an old hymn that says something to the effect that there is a place where mercy sheds the oil of gladness on our heads. A place that all more beside it is the blood stained mercy seat. What a picture. What a picture. And when we see the Ark of the Covenant, we should not be surprised why David desired to have that Ark come. To bring that ark back and put that ark in the place of the preeminence to which it belonged. But for us, we understand indeed that everything that that ark pictures, everything that that ark pictures has been realized in Jesus Christ. Everything that the ark pictured. Oh, we don't have the ark anymore. The ark is gone. Jeremiah says the day comes when there will not even be a thought again about that ark. Why? Because the reality that that ark prophesied has come. Jesus has come. And everything about that ark of the covenant has been realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And indeed he is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, he is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the mercy seat. And the only way, and this is the first lesson to learn, this is the main ultimate lesson to learn, that there is no way, there is no way that man can experience anything of the presence of God apart from Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ, through the blood-sprinkled way, that we have access, 
that we have access into the presence of the God of heaven. And David knew all of this. David knew the significance of that ark. And that leads then to our second thought. That not only is the presence of God something to be understood, and the ark gives us what it is to understand something of that, the presence of God is something to be desired. And experiencing the presence of God indeed is desirable. To worship, to serve, to live without a sense of the presence of God is tragic. And as so many Christians and so many churches seem to get along without the ark, we seem to get along without the ark, without that presence. Indeed, it's folly. And far too many are insensitive to spiritual realities. We can get so busy sometimes in religious behavior even. We can get so involved in religious activity that we miss out on the real experience of the presence of God. I think the most tragic scene that we have in all of the scripture, certainly one of the most tragic, Revelation chapter 3 in the church of Laodicea. There's a church that was prospering. A church that was involved in spiritual activity, in religious activity. A church that was worshiping the Lord. But Jesus said, I've got something against you. I've got something against you. You've got that picture then of the Lord Jesus saying, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'll come in and while fellowship will have communion one with the other. What a sad picture. There was the church of Laodicea going through all of the rigmarole of their worship. They were doing everything right, seemingly. And Jesus was on the outside knocking to get in. And they didn't even know he was gone. They didn't even know he wasn't there. Oh, let that not be true for this congregation. Let it not be true for any faithful work of God that we can go through all of the motions. We can go through all of the motions of worship. We can do it right. We can follow the regulative principle. We can be reformed, yeah, even. And go through all the activities without being conscious, without being conscious of the presence of God. Remember in Luke chapter 5 is Jesus gives that illustration of the bridegroom. The question had been raised about fasting. And Christ says, how, how, can, how can you fast when the bridegroom is present? It's a time of joy. Time of celebration. When the bridegroom is there present, it's a time of joy. But the day will come, the times will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom taken away, and then there'll be a place for fasting. When you, when, you, when you realize, when we come to the realization that Jesus, where is Jesus? We don't know the experience of the presence. That's time then when our desires for him would cause fasting and whatever it is to restore 
that place of fellowship. So I say the presence of God is something that ought to be desired. In the context before us, it was a desire that was intensified by absence for almost 60 years. For almost 60 years, the ark had been languishing in exile. The Lord had withdrawn his presence and allowed the symbol of his presence to be removed. In that degenerating and degenerate time of the judges, Remember, the ark had become just a talisman, had become just a, 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 a mascot, a, a magical charm that they would take with it into battle. The days of Eli and his sons, right? Remember the battle there with the Philistines, and they took the ark. They took the ark. Oh, we'll, we'll, take, we'll, ta- we'll take God with us. They just assumed that God was in that box. We'll take God with us, and that'll be, the, that'll be our, our, our deliverance. And God would not be mocked. God would not be mocked, and that ark was taken captive then by the Philistines. And the Philistines, in their ignorant, in their ignorant curiosity, were judged by God. And they sent that ark back on that driverless cart, back into the land of Israel. When it reached Beth Shemesh, even those Israelites looked in and God killed them. You don't tolerate. God will not tolerate the abuse and the irreverence toward his ark. But for so long. And so the ark then was just kept in the wilderness. It was kept in the wilderness for these 60 years or so out of sight. David says, we've not had the ark. The ark is... We, we haven't used it at all. We have not enjoyed his presence all the days during Saul. And before that, the days of the judges. From David's youth, apparently, he, he desired to bring the ark back to its place of preeminence. Look at Psalm 132. We sang it here a moment ago. Look at David's desire expressed here. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions. How he swear unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not come again to the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacle. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. There's David's expressed desire for the ark. And what a good desire that was. To bring the ark back, having been in exile, as it were, for these many years. The absence of God's presence for him was intolerable. And I trust that's the same for us as well that we become conscious as we come into the house of God, and not just in the place of public worship, but in our lives individually and privately. Are we conscious? Are we conscious? Are we living in that fear of God, the consciousness that God is present with us? Oh, we know he's omnipresent, yes. But I'm talking about that special experience of the presence of God where our hearts become aware 
that we are in the holy presence of the God of heaven. The desire that was intolerable for David, and so we have in our text his plan to bring the ark back. They found it there in the fields of Ephrathah in the wilderness. Cured that jeering. Going to bring it back. And that desire was then accompanied by praise. The people agreed and there was singing and there was dancing and there was music and great experience of joy. The people were in agreement back in verse 4. They agreed with everything that was being done. They want to experience that presence as well. The intent was good. The motives were good. The joy was real that they were experiencing. Expressing their desire. And I trust indeed that we have a desire. That it is the genuine desire of our heart to know and to experience God's presence. But there's a third thought. That the presence of God is something to be feared. It's something to be feared. Requires caution. And this is the main message of the narrative before us. The very excitement of the people gave way to a sense of familiarity that was unhealthy. Their enthusiasm for God caused them to soon forget his holiness and his need to fear him. So the presence of God is something to be feared. In our text, it was learned the hard way. The lesson that was learned the hard way. Because they violated God's way. And there were two, two errors. On the one hand, we see it in verse 3. They wanted it back, but yet they did it wrong. They put it on a new cart. Verse 7, rather. They carried the ark of God on a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. That was the first mistake. And then the second mistake is when Uzzah stretched out his hand to touch the ark of the Lord. Moses had given very express instructions as to how to transport the ark. Numbers 4, Numbers 7 give us those details. The ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the son's of Kohath was to be a veil that was placed over the ark. The ark, as the people would make their way in their wilderness wanderings, was not to be an object of curiosity. So they covered the ark, and the ark was borne upon the shoulders of the sons of Kohath. Very strict requirements as to how the ark was to be transported. That was God's way. But David puts it here on a new cart, following seemingly the pattern of the heathen. Remember again back when the Philistines had captured the ark and they went through all the maladies and judgments that God had inflicted upon them. They wanted nothing to do with it, so they sent the ark back and they put the ark on a, cub, on a cart, on a wagon. And without drivers, without leaders, that ark... Those oxen then on that new cart took the ark back to the land of Israel. It worked. It worked. 
There was no immediate judgment upon them for doing that. It was upon the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh when the ark returned there and they looked into it. But the cart got the ark back to where it belonged. And so David follows the example here of the heathen. He puts the ark on the wagon. Expediency. Apparent success, but the apparent success was no indication of real success in God's service. And there's a lesson there. We live in a day where if something works, we tend to think that's of God. Whether it's gimmicks or this, that, or the other, but no. Apparent success is not the sign of real success in the work of God. So they transported it the wrong way. And then there was Uzzah. Uzzah. It says in our Bible here, translated, they drave the cart. I don't want you to have the picture here that they were on a bench riding along the wagon, but they were by either side. They were walking. Uzzah and Ohio were walking alongside the oxen, leading them, as it were, but not on the wagon itself taking the ark back, and then the oxen stumbled, the oxen tripped, and it appeared that the ark was in danger of tipping over, falling off of the cart, and so Uzzah stretched out his hand to steady the ark, and God killed him, God killed him. Don't feel sorry for Uzzah. I think we sometimes read this and we feel sorry for Uzzah. What would you have done? Yeah, what would you have done? You're walking there, the ark seemed to be tumbling over. God didn't tolerate it. The text in 2 Samuel says that he committed the error. Authorized version translated, he committed an error by trying to steady the ark. But that word that's translated error there has the idea ultimately of that which was blasphemous that which was blasphemous even though the ark appeared to be crashing it was impudence and it was blasphemy for Uzzah to do what he did because God had made the restrictions expressly clear his motive was good I'm sure but it was sacrilege because it wasn't God's ordered way and God judged, killed him. God's not to be mocked. The Lord had made it clear how to do it. Don't touch it lest you die, he said. What a warning that the Lord is jealous. The Lord is jealous for his name. The Lord is jealous for his word, for his law. It's imperative then that we are careful to obey, to consult the scriptures. To consult the scriptures, it's, that's, a telling, that's a telling point there. Look at how, how did the chapter begin? David consulted with the captains of thousands, hundreds, and every leader. Didn't consult with God. Didn't look to the word. Just consulted with 
others, other people, and, oh, that's a good idea. It's a good idea. We must consult the Scripture. The Scripture is our rule for faith and practice, not just because something may work, seemingly, but it's following the precepts. So don't feel sorry for Uzzah. It's a violation of God's law, a violation of God's word. So I say they learned this the hard way, that to be in God's presence is a fearful but yet a wonderful thing, and therefore you don't trifle with God. But it was a lesson that was learned nonetheless. A lesson that was learned nonetheless. David at first was angry. David was hot. Verse 11, David was displeased. Literally, David was hot. He was angry. He was mad. Because the Lord made a breach upon Uzzah, and therefore they called the name of that place Perez Uzzah, literally the breach of Uzzah, to this day. He was mad. He misinterpreted the Lord's inflexibility as being petty. He should have humbled himself beneath the mighty hand of God. God, we did this for you. Lord, we did this for you, but yet, look what you've done. You've killed poor Uzzah. It matters how the work is done. Even the most pious dare not become familiar with holy things. So David feared. Now, that's good. In verse 12, David was afraid of God that day. David feared, and that was good. That was good. So the presence of God is something I say to be taken seriously. When we pray for God's presence, what are we praying for? When we desire God's presence, what are we desiring? It's not just vain talk or empty talk. Not just part of our Christian jargon. Are we coming to God's presence? Yeah, okay. But let us even as Reformed people that, again, we're doing it all right. Yeah. We're doing it all right. We don't have the gimmicks. We don't have the shenanigans that are taking place. No, we, we come in with reverence. We don't talk when we sit in our pews. and we, Yeah, it's good. It's good. But let us not substitute our traditional behavior with the real experience of God's presence. Not a magical thing. It has to be a heart reality that we come to understand. So it is something, this presence of God, something to be feared. But notwithstanding, the presence of God is something to be enjoyed. It is something to be enjoyed. Fearful though it is, it's better to have it than not. The severity of grace seemed to make David reluctant. I'm not going to take this. How can I? So they put the ark, the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David was reluctant here to 
take the ark any further. So he puts the ark, the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and his house began to prosper. His house was blessed with the presence of God that was there. He's called in our text here a Gittite. But if you look a few chapters later in 1 Chronicles 26, you have something of the genealogy of Obed-Edom there. And you'll find that Obed-Edom was of the sons of Kohath. A Levite. The family of Kohath whose responsibility it was, per the instructions of God, to take care of the Ark of the Covenant. So they're doing it right. They're doing it right. And there was real blessing. There was obvious blessing. And David became aware of that. Verse 12 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. It was told the King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. There was a real blessing. There was an obvious blessing then that David heard about. They came and told David, Look what's happening to the house of Obed-Edom. And it became then a motivating blessing because David then again wanted that presence with him. But this time he did it right. And you read in Second First Chronicles, he did it right this time when the ark was brought. The ark was brought back and even after they put it on, uh, on the shoulders of, of, of the Kohites, they took six steps. They took six steps and David said, this is working now. And they offered sacrifices. They offered sacrifices in thanksgiving for the Lord. They did it right and the ark came back. A motivating blessing. So would it be? Would it be that we, as a people of God today in our generation, oh, we're not under the same kind of regulations, obviously. We're not limiting and identifying the presence of God to be a box or to be something we put on the communion table. It's a spiritual presence, but it's a real presence. And I trust that that's our desire. I trust that's our desire that we cannot tolerate, that we cannot tolerate going on and just playing the religious games. Oh, we wouldn't miss church on Sunday. No, that's our tradition. We go to church on Sunday twice even. Yeah. But let us not substitute just the form and the ritual and the routines for the real spiritual experience. To be overwhelmed with the reality of the presence of God. And would that we would honor His presence. Would that we would be that which is, can I just speak in these terms here, the, the envy of others? 
Obed-Edom became the envy of David. He was motivated to share in that blessing. Can others see in us that we know something of the presence of the Lord? I think of the description that was given to the disciples after the ascension of Jesus. They were ignorant men, unlearned, but it was clear to all that saw them that they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. Would that be true for all of us? Corporately, personally, not priding ourselves in just keeping the regulative principle, but personally, in our heart of hearts, knowing that God is with us. They did it wrong. Yeah, they externally did some things wrong and God judged them for it. But it can be. It can be that we can do everything right, at least externally right, and miss out on the presence of God. Let it never let 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 the Let the epithet of Laodicea never be the case here. May it never be said of Kalamazoo Reformed Church that you've gone through all the motions. You've done everything right. But Jesus is out there knocking to get in. And you're unaware of his absence. Lord, make us sensitive. Make us sensitive. Spiritually sensitive. To the presence of God. Amen. Oh Lord. You've considered a sobering word in many ways. A word even that sometimes bothers us when we look at what was done to Uzzah. We often wonder, would not we have done the same thing? But Lord, thy word, thy word must dictate and our hearts must be responsive to that word. So may, Lord, we come in our own experience individually, corporately to know, to live in the reality of the presence of God, not just in regard to his omnipresence, he's everywhere, infinitely, but those special manifestations of his presence with his people. He is with us. 
Lord, speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.